and welcome back to Viking Fuel. My name is Anthony, and as always, I'm broadcasting out of sunny San Diego. Today on the show, I have Tom Repass with me, who is a uh, beekeeper as well as has won many medals from the Mazer Cup. And just recently, he's won the Bee Maker of the Year Award with the American Bee Maker Association. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great out here in western South Dakota. <laughs> How's the weather out there? Just out of curiosity, I've got some family that live in the it, area. It's been mixed. You know, we had some really cold days, but then we've had some days that were up in, maybe into the 50s and 60s and the bees were flying, so that's always good. That that definitely does sound good. <laughs> um, so one of the questions I always like to ask people whenever I have them on the show is, uh, how did you get into making mead? And for you specifically, uh, how did you get into being a beekeeper? So I was a beekeeper for for a long time before I, I was a meat maker. And I, I think it was inevitable because um, my family were, were beekeepers and meat makers in Europe. I'm a first generation American. My, my father's side came from Hungary and my grandfather was a winemaker over there and they also were beekeepers. And I first got my first two hives given to me when I was 13 years old. Uh, that was back in 1981. And I was following my dad around and watching what he did. I was very curious because they're amazing little creatures. And, uh, and I was a beekeeper back in the good old days before they had all the problems that we have now with uh, varroa mites and all of that. And so I, I didn't make alcohol because obviously I was 13, although I know some people that were doing it maybe at a young age. Um, but I decided to start brewing when I was in, uh, in grad school or medical school because uh, I wanted a hobby that you could start and put down. And so I started brewing beer, and I thought, you know, great hobby. I'll make some cheap alcohol. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, and so I made beer for a while and wine and, and cider. And being a beekeeper, obviously it made sense to try making mead. And I didn't – this was back in, oh, 1992 or so. So back in the, the days when we didn't have the internet and Ken's book wasn't even out yet, and there wasn't really a lot of information – and so the first few batches of meat I made were, were terrible. I, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. We didn't know anything about nutrients. I remember putting in acids and tannins up front and not by taste, but just by like, you know, a teaspoon or whatnot. And it turned out terrible, undrinkable. And I thought, you know, as a beekeeper, I thought the bees work really hard to produce this wonderful honey, this perfect ingredient. And I just screwed it all up, making it into meat. So I, I basically did not make meat for many years. And I focused more on beer and wine. Um, and then I came back to it with some more knowledge and, um, and you know, I, I, I really enjoyed it. My friends enjoyed it and they, my friends said, you should, you should enter competitions. You'd, you'd win medals. And I'm like, Oh, I don't need no medals. You know, I, I just like to make it. You guys like to drink it. It's a perfect relationship, but they finally convinced me to, uh, to enter some competitions and I won medals and I thought, well, I kind of like this. And so that's kind of how I got into uh, making the mead and then later on, you know, winning some medals and, and all of that. I uh, I definitely feel like almost everyone can relate, relate to you in regards to the first few batches you make are just god-awful. Typically tastes like a rocket fuel, in my opinion. <laughs> just Oh, it was undrinkable. And I, you know, and, and honey, and even though I made the honey, it, it, it's still, it's very expensive in terms of how hard the bees work. They, 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 they literally work themselves to death to produce that honey. And they mm -hmm. do that because... They're providing for the next generations um, of the hive, of their colony, um, and I think it's a beautiful thing. But for us as meat makers, you know, at worst, we can just 
take a perfect ingredient, honey, and, and mess it all up. At best, we can maybe make it into something good or, or even, you know, absolutely delightful. And uh, but uh, wasting honey, you know, it, it just didn't make sense to me. So that's why I, I did not make meat for, for quite a few years until I came back to it after I had some more knowledge. Well, um, I definitely am glad that you did come back to it. Um, obviously, you're well respected in the mead community now. Um, and uh, I feel like I'm at a point kind of where you are right now where my friends are like, when are you going to start selling this stuff? You should be entering contests. And it's really pushing me to start getting there as well. In fact, uh, I just recently joined a homebrew club to help me gain more knowledge as well. Excellent. And, you know, I really recommend folks enter competitions. And especially uh, I would recommend you know, a mead-only competition, like Nazer Cup, obviously, but there's other good ones, too, and, you know, there's Mead Free or Die, and Domerus is a great competition, and, and there's there's other ones, mm -hmm. um, and there's even some beer competitions that have some, some great mead judges in them, too, but that way you can get kind of an idea, because it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you might like what you make, and maybe your mom likes what you make, but it might not be as good as you think it is. I cer I've certainly made things like that, um, but getting some feedback from, from a some meat judges will um, will help you, and because and, some of the stuff I entered, you know, it wasn't really good. In hindsight, it really wasn't very good, and it's kind of it kind of hurts your feelings because you know you you were so proud of it, and you get get the score sheets back, and 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 to enter it into more than one competition too, so you get maybe more than one set of judges. Because I've had entries that they were kind of weirdly judged, and you know, I, I, so I just entered into another competition, and there was a totally different uh, scoring and. You know, maybe the first set of judges they were off, or maybe they were tired. Maybe their their palate was um, was not because maybe it was the last flight of the day or something like that. So you don't know, or maybe they just were not able to take out their personal preferences or whatnot. But mm. you know, if there's a pattern you get from the feedback from the judges from multiple judges and competitions, you know, maybe there's a thing there, and and you know, so you try to learn from it and get better. And that's basically one of my secrets of how I've gotten to where I. Um, have won all the medals that I have, which is, it, it really is amazing to me because, you know, I'm homebrewer. I make it in my house. Mm -hmm. Not, I'm not doing anything that, that nobody else, you know, can't do or, or doesn't know how to do. Um, I know other people have probably asked you this, but have you considered going commercial just out of curiosity? Oh, of course. Um, my wife and I have been thinking about this for, for quite a few years actually, but you know, we're in a tourist area here in, in, in western South Dakota. We're in the Black Hills. We're, we're not far from Mount Rushmore. Um, but our challenge is finding a location. And it, until you find a location, you really don't have anything because you can't submit your permits. Although I guess right now with the government shutdown, it doesn't matter. Right. You <laughs> can't do anything. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's basically been our barrier is, is finding a, a location that's going to work for us. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, my wife and I, that's our dream is we do hope we can go commercial because we'd really like to share what we make with the world. I mean, I share it with my friends and, you know, they come over and, but I can't sell it obviously legally. And, and so, but it would be nice to be able to do that. And especially with our, our backstory of, of beekeeping being such a part of our family, you know, for so many years, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really wonderful, you know, beautiful combination to, to make the meat out of the, the honey that I, I, I my bees raise, but I purchase a lot of honey, of course. I mean, I, we don't have meadow foam here or orange blossoms or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
my next question for you uh, would be, uh, out of the meads that you've made, what would you say is probably the best one so far? I know this is a hard question because everyone is their own worst critic, but I love the answers I get from it. Oh, boy. You know, I can't, I, my best one, I can't answer that because my best one is going to be the next one that I make, my next uh, idea that I conceive in my mind that I pull off and it turns out how it was in my mind's eye. I mean, I've had some that were my favorites in, in ways that maybe they didn't. For example, my Mazer Cup, my first Mazer Cup, uh, best to show, um, in 2015 was a strawberry melomel, a stra sparkling strawberry melomel. And it had a lot of problems early on. Um, it had volatile acidity, it had ethyl acetate, which is basically nail polish remover um, notes. And I thought it was ruined. Um, I, I figured out. And this wasn't in a book or anything. I figured out that I left a glass out overnight. The next morning, and I just, because I was so disgusting, I couldn't finish it. And my, one of my wife and I were trying it. We were like, is this even safe? You know, I mean, it smells so much like nail polish remover. So I left it out overnight. And the next morning, I was going to pour it out. But I, I smelled it. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's, it's all gone. Or am I imagining that? And then I realized if you swirled it vigorously, it would also go away. So the problem, though, is... You couldn't just do that because you'd oxidize your meat, and so I had to think: How will what could I get rid of this this flaw that that's um, you know volatile without oxidizing it? And I just came up with the idea. And like again, I didn't read this anywhere, but I came up with the idea that if you rack it on the side of your container, um, it will give a lot of surface area. But if you do that into a container that's full of air, you you oxidize, oxidize it. So what I did is I first purged the uh, the carboy with a bunch of CO2, and then I sulfited the heck out of it because I was afraid of oxidizing it and ruining it. And mm -hmm. I did it a few times. I can't remember. It was multiple times. Maybe it was a four times or five times. And after that, it, it really the, those the, that those the flawed notes were gone. But I still you you remembered how bad it was or how how many problems it had. It's kind of like a spoiled brat as a child. You know, they grow up into this beautiful adult, but you just remember how much of a spoiled brat they were to raise. And I thought, well, I'll just enter this into to Mazer just to get some feedback about how I can make it better. Mm -hmm. And um, I wasn't able to stay over that time. I had to go home. So I'm, you know, the next morning I'm, I wake up and I don't have my reading glasses on and I'm looking at my phone to see, okay, who won, who got a medal, who got best to show. And, and I see my name there and I, I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I shouted, uh, my wife's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I, I can't believe this. Is this a joke or something? What? How is this possible? And I got best to show for that. But, you know, my my memory, my 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 tasting and, you know, I remember how it was early on and I couldn't get that out of my mind that I had fixed it. And that's but that does happen. You kind of have this remembrance or memory of of what something was and you can't appreciate something for what it is. And it can go the other way, too. You can think something is better than it is, even though it's not. And that's why it's always good to get objective feedback. But I think that probably is my favorite um, mead that I ever made, simply because I w almost didn't even enter it. I was like, oh, this is not even going to do anything. And then it, it got a best to show. And that wasn't really the feedback I was looking for. I was looking for, um, you know, constructive criticism. But anyway. How, how to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I had already fixed it, but I, I, didn't, I was not able to realize that because I just kept thinking about, you know, how hard it was to work with um, originally. I uh, I actually have a mead that I'm drinking right now, uh, which is a it's a uh, 
It's kind of interesting. I uh, made a pineapple cider in my crock pot, and then uh, I added uh, blood oranges as well as lime juice uh, in my fermenter um, prior to uh, starting it. And I started off with the issue of too much citric acid. Um, mm, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, it left me with a stuck fermentation. So I decided to add maple syrup to give it more sugar. And uh, it took off, but at first it tasted at like rocket fuel. And uh, I decided to try just out of curiosity, because it's what I had on hand, uh, adding uh, brown sugar to it to see how that helped. And uh, now it actually is really amazing, but I still in the back of my head think about, well, what could I do have done at the beginning to make this better? Yeah, it's always, it's always better to prevent. I mean, you could try to fix things you know and if it's kind of fusely maybe aging will soften it but it's still you know like, like we say a bad mead that's aged is, is an old bad mead right I mean, there's only only so far it can go and you know mm. and if something's acidic you can you know you can back sweeten to soften that but if it's really acidic that you, you're gonna have like a sweet tart you know or, or a sweet and sour or something that may not be very good either mm. so yeah you can play around with some of these things but it's always better to avoid uh I don't know, backing yourself into a corner to where you're kind of stuck. You know, how am I going to fix this? And that's one of the things I've gotten a lot better at is um, I can taste something. At, and, I mean, I taste it frequently as it's fermenting, and, and, and I smell it all the time when it's fermenting. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you can pick up things. Like, you know, you smell it, and it's like there's a, salt, a little bit of sulfide. You know, while it's actively fermenting, it's like, oh, um, did I do a nutrient addition? Or, oh, maybe I need to aerate, or maybe I just need to rack it off of that. And, and that's enough to get rid of the hydrogen sulfide, which – is a lot easier to deal with than if you wait and now you've got like a mercaptan's flaw or something and it's like, you know, it's like onions or cabbage or something and that's really hard to take care of it. And so prevention is always better than trying to deal with it afterwards. Mm, yeah. But when I first started out, I would have these things turn out and I'm like, I had no idea what happened. I just knew it wasn't good I, and I didn't know why. Mm. So part, part of the learning is, is making some bad batches too and learning from that so that you won't do it again. And I've dumped out batches. I, you know, it's sometimes I don't have the courage to do it, so I just set it off in the corner for a while, and finally I need a new carboy, and then I'm like, okay, I could just dump this out, and I don't really have any emotional attachment to it anymore. I've only dumped out one batch so far, and it, it was a test batch anyway, thankfully. Uh, it was from a honey that uh, somebody at work had given me, and I just made a traditional with it, but it just it tasted god awful i had no idea what was wrong with it i couldn't quite figure it out and i had no idea how to fix it and i was like i'm i'm not gonna waste more time on this anyway it's a one gallon batch i felt sorry about wasting the honey but it was yeah, one of those things yeah. where i just that's where the judging is really helpful too is this um even if somebody's not that interested in doing a lot of judging but but reading the bjcp materials it's it's online i mean they have the, the study guide um, certainly taking the, the written test and then the, the tasting exam too. I, I, that was actually, and I've taken a lot of exams in my life, but actually the tasting exam was kind of tough in that it was very different. You know, it wasn't like you're not just reciting memorization. You know, you're not just taking multiple choice in a tasting exam. You're actually, it's like as if you're judging. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. like you think you have 90 minutes for six me's. You think, oh, that's plenty of time. You know, 15 minutes, of, it goes fast. And then they bring, they're bringing the next one. You haven't even finished the, the one before that. Right. But I definitely encourage folks to go through that because it will improve your knowledge. And of course, it's I think I look at it as only, as only the beginning. If you get your your BJCP uh, 
uh, meet as a you know certified meat judge. That's that's just the beginning. Now the learning really begins as you're actually judging alongside judges that are more experienced than you, mm-hmm. and you can really pick up things that, or or learn things from judges who are more experienced. And that's why I love judging, especially alongside somebody who maybe um, can pick up things that I don't notice. Uh, we, you know, we all have different. Uh, thresholds for detecting certain things mm-hmm. you know, i'm really good at picking up sulfide flaw i think because i i'm a, a reductive style mead maker what i mean is i you know there's oxidative style of mead or wine and there's reductive and and so oxidative would be like a polish mead or barrel age or something like that whereas reductive you know in in the like say we're talking about wine that would be more like a you know pinot grigio or something you know where you try to keep it fresh and acidic and mm-hmm. and no oxidation and since that's the style where I tend to to do well, I you know that's the risk there is you, you can get these sulfide flaws, and I'm very sensitive to them, almost too sensitive. So even in a competition, I'll pick up things where I ask the other judge, "Do you notice that?" They're like, "No," and I'm like, "Okay, I, I I'll be careful not to overly um, critique somebody because just because I'm very sensitive in that." Mm-hmm. But then there's other things I'm relatively blind to, um, you know, like. Uh, sorbate I, I can't tell at all you know there's a, some people can detect it at 150 milligrams per liter and others it's not until 300 i mean i put it into like water and I, I mean i know there's something there but it's like i would never pick it up in a in a mead so i'm, I'm if somebody says they can detect it i you know another judge i would believe them because i'm pretty much blind to it yeah. or like, like like sulfites um you know my wife is very sensitive she can tell when it's Oh, 40 or 50 parts per million, whereas I'm probably around 70 or 80, maybe a little higher than that. I know that because I, I did a trial where I had different levels, and I was just to, to, so that I can know, you know, where is my own personal threshold for this. Mm-hmm. So um, my next question for you would be, this one's equally as hard as the last one. Uh, outside of your own mead, what would you say is probably the best mead you've had so far? Oh, my gosh. You know, that's <laughs> like your favorite food. Right, it, I, you it's... know, I definitely uh, all the all the meads I've had, and we're talking commercial now because, you know, if we're, if we're talking about home brewers, you know, obviously, uh, oh, there's you know, Carmen Wilson makes some really wonderful stuff, but um, for commercial mead makers, John Talkington at Breaminghorn, it's uh, his his commercial mead is is wonderful. I, I've had his his homemade mead before he went commercial, and now he is commercial. Um, you know, Sergio with uh, Milovino had makes some outstanding mead as well. Um, but there's there's great commercial meat of all kinds. I mean, I've never been that much of a uh, oh, session style meat, but um, mm-hmm. Charm City Meatworks makes some great dry session meats. A lot of people might not like that because they're thinking of something you know heavy and thick and alcoholic. And but I, I like I like them. You know, for a good dry session meat, that they make some really great ones. Um, I could probably go on and list almost everything <laughs> in the country if you give me enough time. And right. what I like about the meats I've tried there, or so. Mm. Uh, I will say personally, for me, uh, one of my favorites that has definitely left an impression so far is uh, I just recently got the chance to try it. Uh, Billy Belts from a Lost Cause. Oh yes, I forgot Billy. Of course, yeah, I've had Billy Belts is, is, has makes amazing meat also. Right. I can't even I can't even believe I forgot that. See, that's you put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, yeah, Billy makes great meat. Absolutely. Uh, I was gonna say though, uh, I just recently, uh, when he was doing his uh, post fermentation class, I tried out um, some of the bouchets that he had just released in uh, his coffee bouchet lucid distortion. It is so so great because it's got figs as well as coffee, and it just hits the palate so well. 
Well, my wife has family down in San Diego, so hopefully we'll be able to take a trip down there and then spend a little bit of time, um, you know, checking out the meteries and, and everything. Well, I've seen family too, of course. But <laughs> I mean, San Diego is a great place for craft anything, really, because uh, we have I agree. so many different types of alcohol out here. I, I, that's part of the reason I love living here, to be honest. <laughs> um. So, because we are talking about beads, uh, there are obviously safety issues that we do need to consider here. Um, not just for us as the people that would be looking into beekeeping, but also for the bees themselves. Um, what are the some of the precautions that uh, we should consider when handling bees? So, you know, that's probably one of the first things I get asked when somebody hears I'm a beekeeper. You know, the first first thing they say is, "Oh, you must make honey." And then the next thing after that is, you know, oh, you must get stung, or how often do you get stung? And I have to admit, you know, I, I've been doing this for, what, this is going to be my 38th year or something like that coming up. And I have to admit, I get a little cavalier after, you know, because you know them so well, you start not even thinking the fact that, you know, a, a full-strength hive in the summer might have, you know, forty or 50,000 bees in it or even more. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, every single one of them could come out there and sting you, um, which, you know, a thousand, two thousand stings, I think, is enough to kill a, a an adult human. Uh, you know, and, and or one sting if you have anaphylaxis and you have a sting allergy. Mm -hmm. But it, it doesn't really worry me or freak me out because, you know, I know them and I'm around them a lot. It's kind of like, well, my dog could attack me while I'm sleeping in the middle of the night, but it doesn't do that because it's my dog and I, you know, it's not a wolf or something. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of new beekeepers, they get really, understandably nervous about this. I've I've done hive tours and had of somebody who's maybe thinking about becoming a beekeeper and I pull off the box and there's all these bees just kind of crawling around. And of course they, they kind of start walking, taking steps backward because you see all these stinging, potentially stinging insects there and they get really, really nervous. But the thing is to remember too, is the bees are not, they're not aggressive. They're not like a, I mean, unless you're dealing with like an Africanized hive or something, but, mm -hmm. but the European honeybees that, you know, they're not like yellow jackets. They're not like wasps. It's like, they're not out to get you. I mean, when they, if they sting you, they die. So they only will sting you if they have, if they feel like they're threatened or, or they have to defend the hive. Right. And so, so protective gear is really important. And I, I, rec I, mean, I, I, I rarely wear gloves, but, but that's because I've been doing it for a while. And if I get stung, it doesn't hurt me, and I don't really react. But for a new beekeeper, I, I recommend that they, they get enough protection so that they feel comfortable, so they can go in the hive and look at it and not worry about am i going to get stung today um so you know a veil and a jacket you can have a full bee suit if you want you don't have to there's jackets that just cover your upper body and your and then maybe a good set of gloves mm -hmm. but i know i've known beekeepers who've got a hive their first year and it's like well the bees died and so I, I was like well what happened well we don't really know well did you look at them did you check them well not really it turns out they were so intimidated that they didn't ever even actually check the bees, so they kind of just put them in the hive and sort of set them in the back of their garden and just kind of left them alone. And you know, you wouldn't get a dog and just set it back there, not feed it or water it, that you know it didn't survive. You know, that would be awful. That'd be you know animal neglect. Right. So I, I really recommend that a new beekeepers get all the different protective gear that they need, mm -hmm. and then not be afraid to use a smoker. I think a lot of some folks are like, oh, it's not natural to use a smoker, but Humans have been had, had a relationship with bees for thousands of years. Before we were beekeepers, we were bee hunters. We would go and, and basically 
steal the honey, but we were using smoke even back then because it worked. It, it mm. basically disrupts the bees' ability to tell each other that they're under attack or that they're threatened. Mm. And a little bit of smoke is a lot better than a lot of smoke, and that's where a lot of the the newer beekeepers struggle with, and they can't, they have struggle having their smoker to light it. And it's just a little puff here and there, and basically the bees, they communicate with chemical signaling. So if they're threatened, they release a pheromone. It t tells other bees, like, get ready, there's something invading our hive. Um, but with a little puff here, a puff there, that's all it takes. It doesn't take actually much smoke at all. Um, I see some beekeepers, you know, like, it's like, well, no, you're not trying to, like, knock them out. Plus, we're not burning anything in the smoke that's going to, you know, do anything like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how would you go about starting a hive? And uh, about how long after starting a hive does it take to actually be able to harvest honey? So, one of the things that, I, you know, I teach a lot of, and I mentor a lot of new beekeepers. One of the things I recommend is... It's always best to have more, start out with more than one hive. And I know that the bees are expensive, the, the equipment is expensive, at least two at the minimum. Three is even better. And the reason is you may have one that's not doing very well, but if it's your only one, you won't know, and you won't have anything to compare it to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you have a hive that's getting weak or they lost the queen, you can take some of the bees from your stronger hive or maybe some some brood and eggs and put it into the weaker hive to help make it stronger or allow them to raise a new queen. Mm -hmm. If you have all your, you know, you only have one hive and it doesn't do well and then it just ends up dying, you know, you've lost everything and which is expensive and it's, but it's also really discouraging too. And I know the keepers, you know, they, they start with one hive, you know, they do that one year, second year, third year, and then they finally just give up because there's, you know, there's, it's, they just get really discouraged. So starting with two, but even better, three hives at the minimum is, is a lot better so that, even if one of them doesn't make it, you know, you still have another hive or two to, you know, to winter and, and to, to have for the next year. Mm -hmm. And for the honey, you, you know, a lot of people, that's why they want to become a beekeeper. They're like, I, I like the honey. I, I want to make it into meat or I want to give it away as a gift or, or maybe sell it at a farmer's market. But I, I tell them, you know, the honey's wonderful, but you should have bees because you love the bees. And then look at the honey as sort of the, the, the wonderful sweet byproduct of happening to have bees. Uh, and the first year, you shouldn't really expect to get any honey. Now, now it's possible. You know, you can start out with a, a nuke. A nuke is short for nucleus hive, a small hive. Mm -hmm. And in a good year, in a good location, it can build up. And those bees might actually make a surplus. And, and you might be able to have a little bit extra honey that year. But don't expect it. That's that's kind of an exception. So it's always better starting out the first year that any honey those bees make, just leave it for them so that they have it so that they can live through the winter. Mm. Uh, I know it's really tempting to, to you know, you're excited. They made some honey. You want to have some honey. But it's better just to leave it for the, for the bees themselves. And then think about the second year is when you're going to uh, hopefully be able to harvest some honey. Right, and um, the uh, the winters definitely are some of the harder season for the bees. I'm assuming because there's Absolutely. no longer any up north. That's when most of our, you know, if we're going to have losses, you know, any any colonies die typically is going to be in the winter time. Mm. And a lot of that comes down to there's no longer anything for them to feed off of. Um, I've heard well, people... or, or they might go into winter sickly. Um, you know, maybe they were weak uh, mm. in the fall, and so now cold comes, and then that's sort of the final thing that kills them off. 
Right. And, uh, I've heard people talk about using sugar water to kind of keep the hives going. Yeah, the we, we do that. If, if, if it's, uh, let's say it's the late summer and uh, maybe uh, it's a, been a drought, they weren't able to make a lot of honey. Um, you know, up here in, in where I live, up in the north, that they need to... You know, they might need 100 pounds of honey, maybe not quite that much if it's a smaller hive, mm-hmm. but they certainly need a lot of honey to survive because that's what they eat. They eat the honey, and then they shiver. Um, they basically unhook their wings, and so the, the muscles in the thorax, they kind of shiver to generate heat so that they don't freeze, and they basically eat the honey all, all winter long. They don't make the honey for us. I mean, they make it for themselves, Right. but if they run out of honey, and honey is basically pure sugar, pure carbohydrate. If they run out of that, they have no fuel, and so they freeze to death after they starved. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we, if they're not doing, if they don't didn't bring in enough, or we're not sure, we'll often feed them some sugar syrup, basically, you know, table sugar that we've mixed in some water to make the syrup at a certain strength, and they'll take it in and they'll ripen it, um, evaporate it, so that they can store it in the cells as if it was honey from a uh, from a flower. Of course, it's not honey; it's just sugar syrup, mm-hmm. but it does give them the 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 carbohydrates that they need to survive the winter. Um, one question, uh, just out of curiosity here. So with uh, bees making honey, it's my understanding that they have two separate stomachs, and uh, they basically will regurgitate, and uh, that's how yeah, the honey they, is made. Yeah, they have a honey stomach, and so that's not really a digestive stomach. It's just for storage, so... So when people say, oh, honey, it's bee vomit, it's like, well, that's not really true. They have, it's it's not gone down into the further part where it's actually getting digested and broken down. Mm-hmm. Basically, when they go to the flower to get nectar, which is a, a liquid the flower makes to attract the pollinators, they put it into that, that honey stomach, and then they bring it to the hive, and then they basically give it to the, one of the house bees, which takes it and puts it in the cell, and then they evaporate it and, and, and cure it into honey. Um, but yeah, it's not really technically bee vomit. I mean, even though it was inside the bee, it was in a different stomach. It's like a first stomach before it goes down further into the digestive tract. Okay. I just wanted yeah. to clarify that for people that aren't quite aware and hear the rumors of it being bee vomit. Yeah, yeah it's, so. you know, if it's bee vomit, that's like, yeah, not exactly, but okay. <laughs> All right. So um, there has been a lot of talk about uh, the damaging effects with the uh, migrating beehives. I'm sure you've seen uh, the episode of Rotten that talked about this, um, as well as other factors that are really damaging uh, to bee colonies right now. Um, I was wondering, what are some of the reasons behind this, as well as uh, what can mead makers do to help uh, prevent these issues, and what can the average person do to help promote bee health? So, you know, in the United States, uh, we, we have, a, you know, all of my friends who are commercial beekeepers, they, uh, they move their colonies to different places. And they do that because they, they need to do that in order to survive economically and financially. It used to be back in the old days, you could just have your hives and then sell your honey and then that would be enough. But, but now honey is, is not really valued as much as it should be. It's, it's treated more of as a commodity rather than, you know, something that's, you know, beautiful, delicious ingredient that we use in meat, but in, in many other things. And so most uh, commercial beekeepers, in order to make a living, they actually make their living off of pollination rather than off of, off of the honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to do that, they need to move the bees to the places where the farmers will pay them. Um, you know, it could be apples, it could be blueberries. Uh, right now, as we speak, a, a lot of 
the bees are being brought into California to the Central Valley where they're going to be pollinating the almonds here in, in, over the next few weeks. Uh, about 80% of the honeybee population in, in uh, the United States is actually in California to pollinate the almonds. And I don't know offhand what the what the price is, uh, you know, the, the rate. It's like, I think, $180, $200 or up per colony. And it depends on how strong the colony is and all that. So they can actually make more money from pollinating than they can from, from making honey and, and all of that. But the problem is when you have all those bees in one place, I mean, imagine if 80% of the people were in, like, one city for a few weeks. I mean, uh, the diseases that could spread between the different hives and the problems that that could entail. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is something that, you know, most of my friends who are commercial beekeepers, they'd rather not have to, to travel there. I mean, you lose bees, the trucks fall over, and sometimes the colonies get stolen. I, you know, if they, uh, you know, if a lot of them could make a living without having the hassle of moving the bees around, they sure would. But the the problem is the way our agricultural system is designed right now. It's not not really possible. And of course, the farmers need bees to pollinate. Also, you know, a lot of the these crops are monocultures where there's only one plant growing there and yeah there's pollen and nectar for but only for two weeks and then there's mm-hmm. nothing for, for the bees and so that's why they bring them in they do the pollen and then they move them out and take them somewhere else so i think for us as as mead makers the best thing we could do is to support our local beekeepers um you know really value the the local honey that's being produced you know a lot of us really want to get some of those really fancy expensive honeys you know tupelo or or meadow foam or, or whatnot. And don't get me wrong, I love those honeys. But I think one of the most undervalued varietals of honey is, is actually wild, local wildflower because mm-hmm. you can't get anything like that anywhere else. And, and even in my own hives, I might have a bee yard in one location and then on the other side of the mountain, you know, just two miles away, I have another bee yard and they're producing totally separate types of honey. And uh, it's, it's almost like a terroir, you know, when they're talking about wine, about how you can really have this very unique location just from where the hives were placed. Mm. And so wildflower doesn't really get, you know, because it's polyfloral and it doesn't have, you know, a single, you know, unique species. But I think it's really the most underappreciated type of honey that there is. And so as meat makers, we can support our local beekeepers, whether they're, you know, hobbyists or sideliners or commercial, um, by buying their honey, um, you know, rather than going through some – and nothing against a large honey pack or anything like that. They certainly – some of them can produce some really, you know, consistent honey for, for mead making. But, but yeah, definitely support your local beekeepers. Right. And uh, I want to throw out in that regard a great place to find uh, local beekeepers and find the honey from them is uh, your local farmer's markets. And the, this is one of the places I love to go to just to see what different varieties there are. Uh, Absolutely. Thankfully for me, I am in California, and there's a lot of different varieties of honey out here. Um, another issue um, with bees and colonizing, I'm sure, would be uh, I'm almost positive that we bring that many bees together, they start having territory wars, so to speak. And uh, I think that that could be a factor in uh, the issues with colonization or uh, migrating the colonies as well. Yeah, it's, you know, if, if one hive is really weak mm-hmm. um, and another hive is strong, it, this could be within the same bee yard or it could be like a bee yard across the road or down the, you know, whatever. Um, and there's nothing for those bees to get because the flowers are depleted. Maybe there's a drought or maybe, you know, it's late in the season. They will rob each other out. They will try to steal the honey from the weaker hive. It's, you know, the stronger hive that's able to, 
get that honey, it's an advantage to that hive, but to the weaker hive, it's a disadvantage because they won't have enough honey to survive the winter. And, you know, they will fight each other. So the beekeepers do try to take precautions. Maybe they'll make a smaller entrance for the weaker hive or, or find a way to protect it. Um, you know, and then you do worry about overstocking a place also. You know, to have 5, 10, you know, even 20 hives in a location is not a big deal. You're not going to, like, deplete the um, floral sources in an area because the bees will fly three miles away, which I, I think somebody did, um, you know, the, the in that radius. Uh, I can't remember what it is, 8,000 acres or something like that within that circle that they'll fly. So there's a lot of flowers blooming um, within that circle of, of how far the bees possibly can fly but if you imagine if it's a very well like in some in central california where they bring a lot of these bees in there they stage them you know there's hundreds of colonies and then you go half mile there's even more you know, mm. they could start running out of food and floral sources and that's when the beekeepers will have to feed them at least temporarily until either the flowers start blooming or they have to move them to somewhere else right and i mean that constant moving is probably incredibly stressful on the bees as well. It is stressful. Although it is, I have to say, it is really amazing to me. You know, honeybees evolved to live in a tree or, or maybe a crevice in, in the side of a cliff, in a, you know, or something like that. Mm. Uh, those don't move. Trees don't, like, walk around. I mean, they're there. Mm. But what's amazing to me is you can get, and we usually move bees typically at night because you want to make sure they're all in the hive. So all, the bees don't stay out overnight. They all come back to the hive. And so you get your hives and you put them on, you know, and you move them. It could be just a few miles down the road or it could be across the country. But what's amazing to me is you unload them, you open the entrance up, and within 20, 30 minutes, there's already bees coming back with pollen. They've already gone out. They've, they've learned their new location. And now they're coming back and bringing back pollen to feed the bees. I, I think that's amazing that an insect knows how to do that. that it's... They, didn't, they didn't evolve, like, with trees that would move. I mean, how do they... How do they know that? Why don't? They, how do they not just fly out and just never come back? You know, when you put them in a new location, they don't. I mean, it's amazing when you open entrance that they'll fly out mm. and they'll automatically realize that they're in a new place and they'll turn around and they'll do what we call orienting flights. So they'll kind of do this sort of back and forth and they'll kind of kind of checking the area out and the, the landmarks, mm -hmm. um, and then they'll fly off and they, they know how to how to come back. And it, it, this is just a little insect we're talking about. Right. It's a it's really a beautiful thing to see it. Right, that that really is interesting to show how they're able to adapt under the circumstances, and uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing. You know how many right. times I've seen it, I still think it's the neatest thing to see. Right, and uh, I, I honestly, uh, I'm always fascinated by how animals adapt to the surroundings around them, and uh, yeah. to me, that that's a great thing that they are able to do that, and I'm hoping that it'll further continue to help them to stay healthy. Especially with the way that things are going in our, uh, our it's been market. a real struggle. Uh, you know, the the main thing that really the biggest struggle. There's really two big struggles, but the one is there's not enough forage in some places. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, if you go into, um, oh, I don't know, like Iowa, where everything is like a monoculture of soybeans and corn. You know, it used to be the farmers would have hedgerows and they'd have different types of farming. So you would, you know, you wouldn't just have corn you'd have pigs and cows and you know you have like you know like you'd expect like the stereotypical like old mcdonald's farm or whatnot mm -hmm. but now in order to be efficient to make a living as a farmer you have to have you have to specialize so you may raise corn and beans or maybe you'll have to hogs too but you might have a central location but because of that they don't have a lot of you know there's no weeds anymore because they, they have to spray them and mm -hmm. there's no hedgerows anymore there's no pastures where they had the dairy cows where there's, the clover would be 
blooming for the bees. And so it's really been really hard for both, not just the honeybees, but even the native pollinators and native bees. Mm -hmm. So that's one struggle we have. And then for the honeybees themselves, the other struggle is this parasite called the varroa mite that it got in to them accidentally. It was originally on another species of honeybee, the European, the Asian honeybee. And our European honeybees don't really have a natural defense. And so they've really decimated them. And it's something I didn't have to deal with, you know, back 30 something years ago. You know, when people talk about the good old days and how great they were, and usually they weren't as great as they remember. Mm -hmm. But with beekeeping, they really were. You didn't have to worry about these things. And now we have to really keep on top of them. We, maybe we have to treat them or we have to monitor them. And, and that's one of the things I do. I mean, my. I make meat in the winter, and in the summer, I, I raise queen bees. I'm a bee breeder, and, mm. and I raise queens to sell to other beekeepers, and, and so I try to raise bees that are, you know, gentle. I don't want to get stung up. I mean, I, it's not any fun to have a bunch of bees. You know, I like to go out there in a T-shirt and work, work my hives. Right. Um, I want them to make honey. You know, I mean, you know, that's why I have bees, but, and I want them to survive our winters. But the other thing is I'd like them to be at least tolerant of the mites so that, that the hive doesn't collapse and die. Mm -hmm. and doesn't require a whole lot of treatments just so that I can keep it alive. And so there's a lot of us bee breeders that are trying to breed for that, but the the genetics of the of the mite resistance is pretty complicated. So it's not like it's one mutation or, you know, one gene that you could just, you, you know, dial in and now everything's fixed. It's not, not that simple at all. There's multiple behaviors and multiple ways that the bees can kind of cope or defend themselves against the mites, but there's not any one thing that's like hmm. sort of the answer, unfortunately. It would it, be nice if there was such a thing like that. It's kind of like a flu outbreak with humans, so to speak, where if we don't get proper treatment for whatever disease we have, at some point the disease will mutate itself to be stronger and more resistant, right? Yeah, and that's the other thing too is not only the mites are more brilliant, but also they carry viruses. So there were these viruses that were always in the bees, but they were pretty low key because there was no way for them to spread. So if the virus was very virulent and it killed the hive, well, the virus would die too because it's this isolated beehive in a tree in the middle of the forest somewhere. Mm. But now because we put the bees into into a yard where there might be, you know, 10, 20, 50 or more colonies all in one yard, you know, the hive dies. Well, the, the few bees that are left will fly and get into another hive and spread the mite and then spread the virus. So They've actually, the viruses and the mites have evolved to be much more virulent, mm -hmm. which is really bad because it's more likely to actually kill a hive than it might have been, you know, back if it was in a more isolated situation. Right. Um, so um, I have a couple questions that uh, people asked on the Modern Me Makers page I'd like to ask you really quick. Sure. Uh, so uh, how much space do uh, urban bees need uh, immediately surrounding the hive, and uh, how much space is needed from each house? So that's a really great question. Basically, you know, the hive doesn't take up much space, just a couple of feet, you know, as a footprint where you stick it. But the bees have to be able to fly out of that hive and then go to wherever they need to go to find flowers. So they need some opening in front of the hive so that because they can't just fly out and then go straight up. Mm -hmm. But they don't need as much space as you think. Um, and the other thing is, you know, they will fly up and over. So what I recommend for people that want to have it like in a suburbs or an urban situation is, um, you know, have a have a way that they can fly out. But then if you have a fence that goes, you know, it could be an eight-foot-tall fence or something like that. Once they're up over people's heads and they're already flying, they, they'll ignore that. Because if you just have them flying like across a sidewalk and somebody comes walking by and the bees, you know, they're like little planes coming in. They're, they just 
they're, they're not really thinking about what's in front of them, and they happen to bounce into somebody or they get tangled into somebody's hair, then they'll sting, not because they're really wanting to attack the person, but but just because they, they got scared and you know they're stuck in somebody's hair or something like that. So mm. if they build a fence or put them where there's a fence where they can fly up and over you know their neighbor's yard, you know, they won't even know. The neighbor won't know the bees are there, and the bees won't really care um, about the, you know, whatever is under them because by then they're far enough from the hive. They only really will defend the hive where they can see within their line of sight. So if there's a fence, it's not like, you know, somebody could be on their side of the fence and the bees don't really notice them because, you know, that's out of the line of sight of the hive. Hmm. So you don't really need that much space, honestly. But it's more how you locate the hives so that the way the bees will fly, it won't like interfere or you know get into any trouble just because they're flying within that flight path. Um, I actually uh, just thought of a question, um, and uh, I'm kind of curious about this. I, I've recently seen some uh, posts about this company that's selling uh, indoor beehives that has like a glass frame in the front of it, and it has like a oh yeah tube that. Yeah. Goes so out for a lot of money. They're like a hexagon type of thing, I think. Right, right. Um, I was wondering, are those hives actually healthy for the bees, or are they damaging to the bees? Well, so I'm as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting right next to my observation beehive in my own house. Um, that I actually keep it in there year round. They don't do much now. They're just sitting there eating honey. But I can still look at them. So if I can't check my beehives outside, I can pull off the little, I cover it with a cardboard so there's, they have a little bit of warmth, but I can just look at my bees, and I'm actually, I pulled it off, I'm looking at them right now, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but for someone who, I, observation beehives are really cool, but you don't have to spend as much money as that outfit is. I mean, it's, if you look at how much it costs, it's really overpriced. I mean, you can, you can build them yourself if you're relatively handy, or you could even find a, a much cheaper version. Mm-hmm. But an observation beehive is not really designed to have bees in long term to survive. Not that it can't be done, mm-hmm. but the way I look at it is you should have some outside hives for resources. So if the observation hive is getting weak or it needs some honey, you can go to your, your hive outside and then pull in a comb of bees or pull in a comb of, of honey um, and to have that as, as a support type of thing. And so if someone wants to you know have an observation beehive, I recommend first become a beekeeper have high, you know, regular size hives outside, learn about the bees. And then later you want to have a hive in your house, you know, you don't have to pay all that money for one of those fancy gimmicky type of ones. You could just have an observation beehive and they're great. I mean, I learn so much from them every year and mm-hmm. I, you know, I've had bees for a long time and I still come home after I've been working bees all day in the summertime and I sit down with my glass of bee and I look and what I do, I, look, I sit there right next to my observation hive. I look at bees even more. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I dream about it even. It's crazy. Right. And, uh, I mean, to me, it would be interesting just to be able to watch and study and observe them, similar to, like, watching an ant colony inside of a container. To, it uh, is, and yet it's so much more fascinating, because somebody said, oh, it's like an ant farm. It's like, oh, it's above and beyond an ant farm. Right. I mean, to me, bees are far more fascinating anyway. Granted, they you do have... You see them doing the dances, and if you if you read and you learn, you can learn how to interpret the dances so when they, when they try to... So when a bee is a scout, and she finds this great bunch of flowers she wants to go back and tell the other bees hey i found this great bunch of flowers so she'll do a little waggle dance mm-hmm. and based on how much she waggles and for how long and what angle she'll tell the bees what direction to fly in and roughly about how far so that they can find these flowers and i mean i've seen a bee dancing and you know i saw she had this yellow pollen on her 
on her on her hind legs and so i actually interpreted i just walked out there and you know half mile away i found this patch of wild sunflowers and it's the coolest thing you know to, to, the guy who discovered this uh carl von frisch actually won the nobel prize for decoding the the, the waggle dance uh talk you know the mm-hmm. and it's amazing these are insects that are communicating in these ways and you can see other things too you can see the baby bees developing and the queen bee develop, uh, laying eggs i mean there's so many different things to see mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of the dance, I uh, recently watched a video on Facebook where, like, outside of the hive, uh, there was it was basically the hive was covered with bees, and they were all dancing in unison with each other, which I thought was really cool. Like, they were all moving kind of at the same time. It was almost psychedelic in a sense, how they were moving together. And Was it that one comb under that tree? Um because I saw a video recently that was shared on Facebook. It was like a this comb under a branch, like large tree branch. Is yes. that the one? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's the giant Asian honeybee, Apis torsada. They live in these big combs, um, and they're giant. They're like the size of a hornet. So, mm-hmm. and I've never dealt with them because I've not been to Asia. But from what I hear, you don't want to get them after you because they'll even if you had a bee suit on, they'll sting right through it. Oh wow! Um, but they do this. They call it shimmering, or they call it like a wave. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's really cool, and they don't really know why they do it. They think it's sort of like a way to dissuade pests, like um, you know, either it's like a, a hornet that tries to attack them, or a, or there's a, something called a death's head moth that tries to get in there, and so they do these waves. Um, but yeah, it's very cool. It's almost hypnotic actually to sit there and watch it. Right, and I mean, in general, I can understand watching these creatures in a sense. Uh, in general, would be almost hypnotic. You could sit there and watch it for days. I mean, I know me personally just watching my rehydration of yeast alone is enough to hypnotize me to some extent well it's so cool too because like you know i I sell queens and so sometimes a a, a new beekeeper or is calls me so i think i need a new queen and uh, do you have any i'm like i do i'll be around friday afternoon and why don't you bring your bee suit uh, if you have a couple hours and so they come around of course i'm walking around my short pants and my t-shirt opening up beehives you know Mm. they're a new beekeeper i want them to feel comfortable i don't want to feel like they're trying to prove anything right um and i'm like oh yeah this hive let me show you this one's queenless can you mm. tell? They're, and they're, they're like, well, no, they're just buzzing. But listen to the buzz. And it's like it's a little different of a buzz. They're much more, oh, I don't know, agitated or anxious or something like that. And they're like, wow. You you know, but when you've done it for a while, you can just pick things up. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, here, let me show you this hive. And look at that. And and this brood pattern doesn't look good. Yeah, this poor hive, it's the mites. It's collapsing from mites, unfortunately. I treated it last week, but, you know, they haven't had a chance to – to, to get better and so when you see this you know you should be thinking about you know these things and a lot of it it's really hard you know you can, you can learn a lot on youtube or reading books but there's no replacement for being out there mm. in the bee yard in the hive and that's why i if i recommend if, if somebody's starting out with bees if they can find a mentor that can help them so much mm. um you know somebody who's done it for maybe at least 10 years or 15 years and knows a little bit to steer them kind of out of out of some of the common you know, errors you can make. Um, and then also to bounce questions off of too, you know, it's like, are they, sometimes you don't know what's going on because honeybees are insects. They're not as intuitive. You know, if you have dogs and you say, Oh, I moved to the country. Now I want to have chickens. Great. You know, they're birds and dogs are mammals, but you know, they need food, they need shelter, they need water. You know, it's mm. not, it's different, but you could kind of conceptualize that. But with honeybees, you know, they're, they're insects. And so it's not the same. And, it's hard for, for us as humans to figure that out. It's not as intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you do. You learn it after you do it for a while. But it's always helpful if somebody can find a mentor. And that's the other recommendation, too, is, is there's a local bee club. That's always helpful, too, depending on the bee club. Some bee clubs, well, like any club, you can get some members that are really strong personalities and 
you know, they don't really allow a lot of difference of opinion. So in some places, uh, maybe some B clubs are not as good. I mean, I'm very fortunate. We have a great B club that, you know, with great people and that we're all passionate and science based. And that's, that's really good. But, um, you know, it's finding a B club if you're, if it, and see, check it out and see if the, the, the folks that are part of that are very helpful to new members and new beekeepers. Mm. Um, so uh, another question from the Modern Mean Bakers page is, uh, does the method used for uncapping the uh, the caps affect the quality of the honey? And uh, I want to further this question and uh, ask, um, can the method you use for uncapping be damaging to the hive? You know, that's a gr- those are two great questions. So... Um, so how you treat the honey definitely matters. Um, I think it's more how you treat it after it's been extracted. And I'm talking about, you know, what your temperatures you're keeping it at, or, you know, what you're doing with the straining or the filtering and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, when most of us uncap, we often will use a heated extraction plane or knife. Um, you know, sometimes they'll, there's other methods where you kind of scratch it off of there or there's like the commercial folks will have like these, Oh, it's, it's not necessarily heated thing, but it's kind of like scrapes through the comb and then you extract it. Um, certainly the honey that I extract, that I uncap with my heating, um, uncapping knife goes into a, 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 a bin where it strains out and that honey has been heated. So it's lightly caramelized. Mm -hmm. And this is a beekeeping mead maker secret, but that that's already pre caramelized. So that, Honey, you might not sell like to, to people like at the farmer's market, but it's wonderful for me because it's almost like the boche. We're ready to prepare boche. It's not totally dark, but it's it's already sort of pre-caramelized. So you, I use that for, for me. That's what I save it back for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm more worried about what happens to the honey afterwards. So if you overheat it or, or even if the honey is, say, it's crystallized, um, we often have to liquefy it. But you don't want to do it at too hot of a temperature for too long because I can also, you know, take away some of the qualities of the honey too. And, and, you know, the aroma and some of these other things. So that, yeah, they, I, I don't think too much about the, the method of extracting it or I'm sorry, uncapping it and extracting that much, but it can have some effects, but I'm more worried about what happens to the honey afterwards, you know, and if it's processed or not, mm-hmm. um, as for damage to the comb. Um, yeah, it depends. You know, it's, some beekeepers will will put in a fewer fewer frames into their super. A super is a box where we put the frames, so that the the combs will be thicker and they can uncap it easier. They get more wax with that. So if you're interested in selling the wax or using it for I don't know making candles or cosmetics, you can get more wax that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bees will basically after that comb has been extracted. And extracting is when you put the the comb or the frame into a um, a device called an extractor and basically it spins it out and it spins at very high speed and so just through centrifugal force it just kind of goes to the side and then, then it spins out and then it slowly falls or drains down to the bottom and then out the bottom of the of the extractor um, but you you know there might be a little bit of damage to the comb but you put that back in the hive and the bees go right at it and they, all that sticky honey that's left they just they suck it up and and they, they fix that within a day. I mean, it's like as if nothing happened. So it's amazing how they just climb up in there and fix it and repair it. So oh, wow. it doesn't affect the comb that much. Um, that That's definitely uh, interesting and good to hear. I'm, I mean, going back to how adaptive these creatures are, that that's great to know that they are able to work so quickly 
to uh, repair it. Not trying to make fun of people, but it's kind of like when uh, the Amish end up losing a building, how quickly they can end up rebuilding one in a sense. Well, yeah, they go right at it. And, it's, and, and the thing is, too, the bees are, you know, the, the, the biologists, uh, you know, they call them a superorganism. And uh, basically, one bee in a hive is like a cell of a body of like a larger organism. So, and mm-hmm. it's a nice way to think about that. So, you know, if, if something happens to a bee and she died, I mean, anything maybe other than the queen is kind of important. But even if the queen got lost, they would raise a new queen. But it's it's the bees themselves together. Um, you know, one bee is just an insect. She's just pure insect instinct, and she doesn't really do any thinking that much. Mm-hmm. But a whole hive together, um, they, they can actually be brilliant in some of the decisions they make. There's a really interesting book. It's called um, Honeybee Democracy by Dr. Tom Seeley. And it's basically how the bees decide as a swarm to find a new home. And they can really make these wonderful decisions almost as if they're the hive is like a brain. And so one bee by herself would be maybe like a neuron within that brain. But it's really, it's a very good book. And, and they make these other decisions too, not only about swarming or finding a new home, but, you know, when to go out and collect, uh, you know, pollen versus nectar. You know, if they have a lot of baby bees, they may have to go out and collect more pollen to mm-hmm. help feed those baby bees. Or maybe other times of the year they're bringing in the nectar to store that as honey. That definitely sounds like a book I'll have to pick up. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting book. It's well written. He's an entomologist, but he, it's very well written, so it's very enjoyable for you, even if you're not, you know, that sciencey or whatnot. I mean, personally, I, I love diving into the really big science stuff like that, but I'm sure other people don't quite enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah, he's a great he's a great writer and, and, and scientist. He's also done a lot of work with uh, with bee hunting, which. Um, and that's something that I, I started doing when I was just a kid. We'd go out to the forest and basically try to find wild wild colonies of bees. Um, back in the old days, they would do that because they were trying to steal the honey. So mm. the old-timers would go, they'd find a wild colony of bees in a, in a hollow tree, and then they cut the tree down and just to get the honey. Of course, that's a terrible waste of a of a hive of bees and you know just for some honey. I mean, if you want honey that bad, just put the bees in a hive and, and get the honey without destroying the the tree or the bees. Right. But I did it as a kid. I, you know, once you knew where the wild colonies of bees and the trees were, you'd leave them undisturbed. But what you do is in the spring they would swarm, and that's when half the bees leave the hive, and then they cluster in a tree or a bush for, you know, maybe a few days until they find a new hive. And if you know where that was, or if you know where they're clustering, you can just basically catch them, you know, put them in a box or a bucket, take them home and put them in a new hive, and you've got three bees. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what how I built a lot of the – built my uh, – my number of beehives when I was a kid, but now I still do that because as a bee breeder, I like to find some of these wild hives that are living, you know, without any help from humans. Mm-hmm. You know, they maybe have some genetics that allows them to survive at least up here in South Dakota, where the winters can be, you know, kind of cold. Maybe not as bad as North Dakota, but um, but you know, those bees might be more adapted to our region. And so, if I can get some of those bees and cross them with the bees that I'm breeding. You know that might be some valuable genetics there, possibly. So, you know, that I'll go out there and I'll I'll follow bees back to the to the hive. You know, through a process we call bee lining. Literally, the bees will go in a straight line back to the hive. Right. And it's a whole cool process. But anyway, um, Dr. Seeley has written books about that, about bee hunting and bee lining. And I wish they had that book when I was a kid because it would have been very helpful. Because a lot of the stuff I figured out on my own because there wasn't an internet or any of these books out available. Right. Uh, well, I feel like I've taken up quite a bit of your time. Uh, I've just got one last question for you before I let you go. 
yeah. which is the uh, same question I like to close with everybody. If you have uh, one piece of advice that you would like to give to a mead maker just starting off, what would it be? Oh, boy. Um, don't believe everything you read on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of good information also, though. Right. Um, and don't just read something or hear something and believe it. You know, think about it. Think about the why it might work. And then so that maybe it'll make sense or not. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier now to, to learn than it was back when I started out because there were really, we didn't have, you know, like I said, Ken's book wasn't out then and there wasn't the internet. And so we were trying to learn from beer making and wine making and meat is similar, but it's not the same. Right. But now there's so much information available, which is wonderful, mm. but yet there's a lot of misinformation too, which really muddies the water and it can get really confusing for, you know, a new meat maker or even for that matter, a new meat beekeeper to decide, well, who do I listen to? Mm. And sometimes the people that are, more persuasive or passionate not are not necessarily the the ones that also that know what they're talking about they might you know say some things that you know might be tempting to believe but they might not be actually you know accurate mm -hmm. so just be very careful about what you read but um if you're hearing it from multiple sources and people that maybe know what they're talking about maybe it's something for you to try out right and uh, I, I have to agree with that heavily because the sources that you pick from definitely are a factor you don't want to just have one person you rely on um yeah. i'm not i'm not going to throw out any names but there are people that normally i would rely on but i've gotten some weird information from them. i'm like eh, i'm not sure if i like that and uh i start looking well, around I a little question bit a lot of things there's things i, I question myself you know right. it's funny some of the things i used to think five or ten years ago i'm now beginning to question and that's how the knowledge you know is is further you know what we think now our best methods and techniques for making mead, you know, I surely hope in 10 years we're going to know a little bit better and, and maybe how to be a little bit better in, 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 in what we do. Right. I mean, Tosna just got updated, actually, and I mean, that alone is a huge difference in the knowledge from what we used to have. Yeah, and I don't even use Tosna. I have nothing against it. It's a great system. Um, mm -hmm. I just use a, use a DAP and Firm K. I've used Firmo and I've used Tosna, mm -hmm. and they work great. But I, my method has been working for a while. I, I do okay in winning medals, so I'm kind of like, well, I, I don't really see a reason to change. You right. Know, it's just I, what, what I do works for me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny how people get really passionate about you got to do it this way. You know, the yeast doesn't really care if it has the nutrients it needs and the temperature and all, every pH. It'll grow, grow. It's like growing a garden. You know, and mm -hmm. you know, there's not there's more than one way to do it successfully. Um, and people get all caught up in, you know, doing it this one way or this other way. And, you know, I'm like, hey, if it works for you, keep doing it. Mm. For me, uh, the way I kind of look at it is uh, when I was working on my degree for audio engineering, there's these set rules, so to speak, that go into how you're supposed to mix audio. But every teacher I had flat out said some of these rules are meant to be broken. Exactly. And music and will... It's like that with beekeeping. It's with everything. Yeah. Much, or any any craft or any mm -hmm. anything like that absolutely yeah and uh, the thing is you have to learn which rules are okay to break i think and when exactly right, right. exactly right so, anyway i think i've taken up quite a bit of your time i'm gonna go ahead and let you go uh this has been viking fuel and uh, as always skull well thank you very much it's been fun cover me cover 
Same place where you're 